The following is brought to you by Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Olin and Angela, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Will Harris, and Craig. Politics, 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 politics. Hello and welcome to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. My name is Justin Robert Young. We are 18 days away from the election, and I gotta tell you, here in the Bay Area, it's getting hot. It's heating up. One of the weirdest things, weirdest phenomenons that I've ever seen meteorologically, and that is, for whatever reason, here, there's like two weeks during the summer where it gets really hot. And then, right now, middle of October, it heats up. A week ago, it was London. Now it's L.A. Next week, it'll start raining. It'll be Seattle. It's a wacky town. We got a lot to get to, though, today. Uh, I I have a couple stories I just kind of want to run through. I'll do my thoughts on the town hall. I don't have a lot of them, but we'll, we'll, we'll go through uh, uh, I want to talk about the fact that I think we're really going to be in the middle of a COVID spike by the time that we go into the election. I, I think that there's, there's, that is going to be a defining element of this election. Not that it hasn't been already, but it will be when people go to the polls. And we'll talk about some of, uh, of the ramifications there. We're going to talk about uh, the, the end of an era. It, this has a political tie-in, but it's an end of an era for our culture. The era of saying, oh, that wasn't me posting that on Twitter. I was hacked. It's over. It's over, Johnny. We're also going to have a roundup of ads. A roundup of wacky ads. We have not done this on the show uh, in, in too long of a time. I wanted to do it on Wednesday. Then we had too much there. We're going to do it today. We also got a mailbag. We also got term limits, a conversation about whether or not the uh, the government would be better if we had term limits. Bad first. Let me ask you about QAnon. It is this theory that... Uh, Democrats are a satanic pedophile ring and that you are the savior of that. Now, can you just once and for all state that that is completely not true so and that disavow QAnon yeah. in its entirety? I know nothing about QAnon. The idea that an eight-year-old child or a 10-year-old child decides, you know, I decided I want to be transgender. That's what I think I'd like to be. It may make my life a lot easier. Well, we didn't get a debate last night. I wanted a debate, man. I wanted a debate. We didn't get a debate. We we got a fake debate. We got a debate between two different networks that were airing simultaneous town halls. They were very predictable. The clips I just played for you here, they're, they're the ones that I suspect will be, you know, the, the, the sauciest. Trump did say the thing. 
Everybody wants him to say the thing. It's like the Bart Simpson meme, like, say it, say it. And he says whatever you want to put in there. And then the whole class is like, yay. They asked him again about white supremacy. And Trump cut off the question to say, I denounce white supremacy. That didn't stop Savannah Guthrie from getting her question off, which is why do you hesitate denouncing white supremacy, which is odd because he cut her off to say it. She then follows up with QAnon, which I I don't think that was a great answer from Trump. If I were Trump, I would say, I don't know if you picked up on this, uh, Savannah, but this is kind of a crazy year. Uh, uh, this would be a crazy year just to be president, let alone to be president and also run for president. So I'm sorry I'm not up with your crazy internet theories, uh, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I would like to move on to issues that the American people really want to care about. Because I highly doubt that aside from people that are just really dialed into politics, that anybody, that there's an undecided voter who's sitting there saying, hmm, yes, but uh, his handle on QAnon, gum forth, president. You know, even COVID, right? Uh, spend the entire time discussing COVID and, and all that stuff. And, and, and Savannah Guthrie did, but whatever. That was that. And then toward the end of Joe Biden's town hall, he was asked by a mother of a transgender child about what he would do to protect the transgender community. And, uh, you know, in very... Joe Biden fashion says, you know, if an eight or a nine year old wants to be transgender, that's great. And that has been seized on by the right. So there's that. Look, it's annoying that this debate didn't happen. I'm just going to take this time to say that I think that the debate committee uh, failed. I said they failed a week ago. I think they failed uh, for sure today, considering the fact that Two television events happen with the two people that you were supposed to have do a debate. So you failed. The debate commission failed. That's it. Like, we're, we're, we're done. They were both able to independently put together television events. Your job is to put together television events with the two of them. So that's that. I honestly think that this should be a reason why we look into either new leadership at the debate commission or both parties should deal with another broker for this. Their success is measured in how many of these they get done. They didn't get one out of three done. One third of their job, one fourth, I guess, one fourth of their job was not done. If I didn't show up to work one-fourth of the year, y'all would be pretty pissed. Just wait until I get really fat and lazy, though. That's definitely going to happen. Uh, uh, but we had we had decades before that. Decades of me talking your ear off before I start taking one-fourth of the year off. But I eventually aspire to get to that Howard Stern schedule where I'm getting paid more than I've ever gotten paid and I'm working roughly a month and a half out of the year. Oh, I'm going to be so annoying. Man, I'll be rich. All my friends will be the people that I've like yelled at. Like, I'll, I'll be like, man, remember back in the day when you would make fun of the debate commission? And then like picture of me and the head of the debate commission on a yacht on my Instagram. And I'm just like, R&R, &R, finally. God, I'll be so annoying. 
They they better never give me real money. I'll be the most annoying person on the planet. Politics. All right. Uh, uh, end of an era. Guys, every once in a while, there's just an end of an era. We have an end of an era. Back in the day, when the internet was young, when people didn't know how this stuff worked, there was a common excuse. An excuse that, you know, we, um, we, we, we were, like, if something bad comes out, you accidentally DM somebody you're, you're not supposed to, uh, you can, you, uh, leak a picture of something, you can say, oh my God, it wasn't me, I was hacked, and this has been used by many people, football coaches, singers, dancers, politicians, everybody, Anthony Weiner said it when he posted his wiener. But I think we're done. We're done. And here's the reason why I think we're done. About a week ago, after that second debate, the debate was supposed to be last night, was canceled. It was going to be hosted by Steve Scully. He tweeted uh, accidentally what was supposed to be a direct message uh, a message to the mooch, Anthony Scaramucci. And he said, oh, I was hacked. Wasn't me. Well, turns out he was lying. And credit to C-SPAN, his employer, they held him to it. They said, look, you're suspended indefinitely. You lied to us and said that you were hacked and you were definitely not hacked. This is Scully's official statement on it. For several weeks, I was subjected to relentless criticism on social media and in conservative news outlets regarding my role as a moderator for the second presidential debate, including attacks aimed directly at my family. This culminated on Thursday, October 8th, when I heard President Trump go on national television twice and falsely attack me by name. Out of frustration, I sent a brief tweet addressed to Anthony Scaramucci. The next morning, I saw that this tweet had created a controversy. I falsely claimed that my Twitter had been hacked. These were both errors in judgment uh, for which I am totally responsible, and I apologize. Scully will now no longer be a part of their election night coverage and... I presume there's a question about whether or not he's got a future there. Now, he's been at C-SPAN forever. So I might suspect that these roots go a little bit deeper than whatever this Twitter controversy is. And we'll leave that there. I know that that Scully has some devotees, man. There are people that love Steve Scully on C-SPAN. Political nerds. And I and I mean like some for real nerds, right? Like these are the political nerds that like, you know, in sci-fi, there's people that like Star Wars. Everyone likes Star Wars, right? Uh, and then there's, like, people that like Babylon 5, you know? In in politics, there's, like, political nerds. There's, like, I watch Rachel Maddow every night. And then there's, like, yo, dude, Scully's got his power tie on tonight. Like, like there's there's those kind of political nerds. And those guys love Scully. So who knows exactly where he goes? Uh, I just wanted to mourn the death of one of the, the 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 great excuses that ran for about a decade, right? About a decade, people were able to just use this as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Sorry, my Twitter was hacked. No more. Politics. All right, something a little bit more somber here, uh, and that is just to recognize that we are going through another wave of this COVID thing. Um... 
I just talked to my buddy from London. They're shutting down again tonight. Europe is in a massive spike. Uh, and we are spiking as well here in the United States. A lot of this is in the Midwest this time. But just to give you a sense of where we are, yesterday, uh, the United States as a whole recorded 66,129 cases. That is for October 15th. Just to give you a sense, our peak during the summer was on July 24th at 78,000 cases. So we are not far away from that. We had dipped as low in early September as 28,000. But but you know as soon as famous people start getting it, that uh, that means a lot of people are getting it. You know, when, when we saw another round of uh, celebrity COVID cases, up to and including the president, uh, uh, Kamala Harris's, comms director got it that that you know that we're just getting we're getting another wave now that means if we are going to game this out that the deaths which have plateaued by and large uh will likely start to kind of spike again you know uh, our our death uh, uh, as as big as we got our, our our daily death toll was on July 30th at 1,851 in one day. So pay attention to that, right? That was the 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 death high was July 30th. The case high was July 24th, which means that we saw a rapid spike about two weeks beforehand. We're gonna get a higher death toll. On election day. You know, uh, I, I said earlier this year that there was a chance that if, if COVID had died down, that maybe people would be looking more toward the future and that would reward uh, the the strategies that effectively revolved around uh, what the life was going to be like after this. Well, we're not going to see that. In fact, we're probably going to see an election day that's a lot like the darkest days during the spring and the summer. Now, I don't know what this does to turnout. We've had tremendous turnout early. But I don't know what this is going to do to polling places. I don't know how many, how many of them are going to be open, what different protocols they're going to do. I mean, th those are questions that need to be answered and need to be answered quick, but uh, something to keep on your radar. Politics. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I sure did. Of course, you can always send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Again, theyoungamerican at gmail.com Melissa writes I'm curious about your thoughts on presidential evaluations any job after a certain period of time you have to have an evaluation of your performance why not the president or even senator house if he or she is not keeping up with their end of the bargain why not have repercussions for their actions I just wanted to pick your brain on this idea also would it be legal to do something like this or is it like term limits 
Um, so there are people that do stuff like this. The problem is, is that by and large, the people that like give politicians grades or progress reports are usually partisan outlets or they're lobbying outlets. So it would be hard to establish uh, credentials on like, okay, well, what should you do? What is good leadership? You know, you don't necessarily want to say, okay, did you do a lot of things? Because sometimes doing a lot of things is not great. But then again, not doing anything is not great. So the question would be on what metrics are you grading? I, in my mind, though, I don't think there's anything that's illegal about it. Will says... My story is related to the Prop 22 issue for which you did a special earlier this week. Because I lived in Seattle when I worked as a sales manager at a large famous company there that had customer service agents working as quote-unquote contractors. They worked in the same building as the rest of us under the direction of company employees at specific hours full-time with no other work allowed. They didn't get any of the fringe benefits. And the staffing company was, of course, from California. I worked in the Latin America region and witnessed the layoff of 14 $80,000 a year plus sales managers of North America only to have positions during the same work hired as an extension of customer service. Uh, just now, business to business, making minimum wage through this company. Of course, one of the rules was that these contractors were only allowed to stay there for 18 months at maximum and then they had to go back into the quote-unquote cycle with other large notable companies in the area doing the exact same thing. A couple years later, I was laid off for the same reason, and then my company found out that in Brazil and Mexico, they don't play with that temporary worker nonsense, and in fact, the Brazil move gave them a lot of trouble for their transition. But their worker protection law is a story for another time. Anyway, my two cents, and by the way, I support the new ABC test and accompanying legislation. Well, thank you so much for your, your, uh, your thoughts on this, Will. I will say that's a little bit different than what the gig work propositions are, but uh, there is no question that there is abuse by big companies of independent contractors. Uh, just DTA, PX3, brothers and sisters, don't trust anyone. Jeremy writes, I just wanted to say congratulations on doubling your patrons since the beginning of the year. Huge accomplishment, and I'm proud to be a supporter. Thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Not only have we seen so many more patrons, we've also seen so many more at the $10 level, at the $50 level. That, that intro at the beginning just keeps getting longer and longer. Thank you, guys. Honestly, this is something that I would have never dreamed before, and hopefully we can continue going to the point where I get so rich, I betray all of my values for a sweet cocoon of money. Jared writes, in this episode of Does This Feel Like a Landslide, you mentioned, that was last uh, Friday's episode, you mentioned the poll showing President Trump being reelected are not as strong as you'd expect an incumbent to be. In any poll, there will be a certain number of people who decline to reply. If the pattern from 2016 repeats itself, there will be a larger than usual number of people who reply to pollsters, F you, F off or some other form of flattery. In 2016, these were angry voters who didn't want to give the pollsters anything to go on and probably account for President Trump's margin of victory. If that data is available, then it might point to another unexpected uh, block of votes going his way. I, I, I don't know if I specifically heard that version of the shy Trump voter. Shy Trump voting in general is usually like people not wanting to say to a stranger that they're going to vote for Trump. That would be kind of 
angry Trump voting. But I, I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know what to make of the polls. I really don't. Because I do believe that polling is eroding. I do think that it's harder. There's less outlets that commission polls. The people that do it are more entrenched in their ways. And the less polling there is, the more likely the waiting is going to succumb to things called like herding. That is when polls do their numbers and then realize, oh, these are way out of line compared to what everybody else is doing. Let's try to reweight this a little bit so it so it comes a little bit more in with the crowd. That's what I worry about. And also, again, I, I'm I, I hate to be a broken record on this, but I'm I'm gonna have to just be a rock in the sea and and while a hurricane swirls around me. I, I'm just going to sit here and say, I think it's going to be close. I think it's going to be close because we're very polarized. I think it's going to be close because Trump won last time and he had no experience then. And he's got four years of experience now. Like, I don't know. I, I, I So I, I don't buy that there's necessarily this totally you know, uh, undetectable by radar block of Trump voters that is waiting in the wings. But I, I do buy that the polling might not be the clearest view of what exactly happens on November 3rd. Or, you know, election day one through 14. Mike says, just finished the book, 1913, In Search of the World Before the Great War by Charles Emerson. The legacy of World War I echoes to this very day. The Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Habsburgs collapsed. The Ottoman Empire collapsed. The Romanov Russia collapsed. The uh, Qing Dynasty of China collapsed. Kaiser Wilhelm, German-Prussian Empire, was destroyed. The British Empire uh, persevered, but its legitimacy was weakened. Only the U.S. and Japan came out stronger, but the U.S. turned to isolationism and turned its back on international affairs. The legacy of the Great War sowed the seeds of World War II. Global free trade was the norm in 1913. World trade would not recover to 1913 levels until 1970. Amazing how much racism figured into the world in 1913. White supremacy. Also male chauvinism, resisting women's rights. Religion, not as militant in 1913 as it is today. There was lingering bad feelings between Catholics and Protestants, but not actual warfare. Except for the Balkans, which has always been a bloody feud between Catholics, Protestants, Greek Orthodox, and Muslims. The Jewish people have always been pro uh, persecuted since the ancient Egyptians. Study of history is fascinating and helps understand some of the roots of today's current events. As somebody who literally is making a podcast about this in the political realm, I totally agree with you. I would encourage everybody to go read this book. I know I will be reading it. And finally, Josh writes, I begrudgingly accepted your reasoning on the Trump calling the military suckers story because without anyone's name hanging on it, the sources aren't facing public scrutiny, just the publications. I think having multiple publications confirm it lends it some credibility, but you're right. The same source could be lying to all of them and without a name to go on, we can't weigh the credibility ourselves. I disagree with your assessment that there is more in the Hunter Biden story. The pictures are obviously pretty real, but none of them show anything corrupt tying to his father. Every other element of this story is incredibly easy to fabricate, and with uh, the convoluted-as-it-all-get-out chain of custody, it has zero credibility. To call this raw data 
is to act like having uh, like to act like fabricating an email isn't the easiest thing to do when you have right access to the hard drive. All we really have uh, have here is a story smearing a man who is publicly in recovery with his past behavior, which is a pretty bad thing to do. Should Twitter disallow linking to it? No, I don't think that's a great idea. But the story is garbage and it shouldn't carry more weight than the Trump sucker story. So in telling me that, Josh, you prove my point. You you exactly prove my point. And and this is going to be maybe I didn't lay this out correctly. So let me let me just um let me just uh uh uh, uh tell you like this. In the Olympics, if Usain Bolt, who is the fastest runner on the planet, tests positive for steroids, then he is worse than the slowest runner on the track. Doesn't matter that that he has the pedigree. Doesn't matter that he has the talent. When the result sheet come, comes out, the slowest runner on the track will have done a better job. So when I say that there's more to the New York Post story, I'm saying I'm giving it license to be the slowest runner on the track. It is raw data. And I said that very deliberately. Raw data. Meaning something that can be attacked. Which you very quickly did. Now, I do find it interesting that the Biden campaign has, to this point, yet said that there was no email and we don't believe these emails to be legitimate. They have said that Joe Biden did not meet with this guy, which actually is probably the thing that makes me think that makes me think the emails are legitimate. Like most of all, nothing in the New York Post story has made me think that those emails are legitimate. The thing that makes me think those emails are legitimate is that I would assume that the Biden campaign would come out and say, hey, um, yeah, we have no idea what this is all about. Hunter didn't ever bring a laptop in. Uh, we think these emails are fabricated, blah, blah, blah. They haven't said that, which means I think twice about it. But again, if you are only using anonymous sources, to me, that's like being disqualified from the race. Like, if you don't use anonymous sources to bring other things, and that's what I said, this, the New York Post story brought things. So yes, at, at the very least, I'm inclined to believe there is a laptop, or at the very least, Hunter was hacked, his iCloud was hacked, but if his iCloud was hacked, then I would suspect the Biden campaign would say it. But again, look at all the paths we can now walk down. All the paths we can walk down. And I'm here to talk about all of them. I'm not saying it's a good story. I'm saying that it meets minimum journalistic standards that the Atlantic story didn't. If you would like to send me an email, you can do so. Please head on over to your email program of choice and type into the subject line, I would like to send you an email and send it to theyoungamerican at gmail. Dot com. Tennessee Trey, Tennessee Trey, gonna send you back to Tennessee Election Day. For the volunteers, they might be okay. 
We need a Hoosier in the house, not Tennessee Trey. Oh, it has been too long since we delved into the wacky world of political ads. Uh, I've been saving them up, and here we are. We begin with uh, the musical stylings of Andy Ruff. He is the Democratic candidate for uh, the Indiana 9th Congressional District. He is running against Trey Hollingworth. He is the uh, Tennessee Trey, of course, of this uh, chorus that you just heard. Uh, Andy Ruff is a musician. That's him singing. I just wanted to highlight this little moment here in uh, a little bit later in the song because it takes a little bit of a a, a hard turn. Uh, uh, we begin with him uh, in in his bluegrass stylings, just listing off uh, some of the, 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 the great cities and, and towns in that Indiana 9th District. But boy, I'll tell you, takes a little bit of a turn. Blooming time to Bedford, Seymour and Bexmill. represent where we call home well that's a hoosier's job well covid kills but investments are trey's priority when he refers to working stiffs he means it literally he says all you working people well there's no need to fear just wear big boy and big girl pants for your protective gear jesus christ It was so folksy. It was just like, well, from the 7-Eleven to the Best Buy, that's where I like to go. I get my coffee at the Caribou, and then I make it down uh, while I drink my Joe. Anyway, my opponent likes to kill you, and he's gonna make you die. If uh, you don't think that I'm better than that, then you deserve to be six feet deep. Tennessee trade, Tennessee trade. I mean, like, I understand we're in a weird world right now, and obviously many issues are life or death, up to and including the COVID-19 situation, but holy smokes, very rarely do you have a candidate say, that person's going to kill you, and even rarer do you have it while there's a strumming and a plucking. All right, this next one is epic. And I don't mean that in that it's great. I mean that in that it's expansive in its scope. What you are hearing underneath my voice right now is congressman, sitting congressman Dan Crenshaw uh, opening up a secret memo, lifting up his famous eye patch because he was disabled in the war, revealing that under that eye patch... He has a robot eye that is now decoding the message because he needs to recruit people to save Texas. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, will be to save Texas. To do so, you must recruit an exceptional team of congressional candidates. They must be courageous, patriotic, and absolutely fearless. Time is of the essence. The nation's future is dependent upon your success. And it's at this moment he literally jumps out of a plane.
It is through the thrilling and scintillating score of a royalty-free Avengers-themed knockoff that he finds Austin Fluger, Beth Van Dyne, Wesley Hunt, Genevieve Collins, and Tony Gonzalez all running for seats in the house. You can see the full ad at their website, TexasReloaded.com. Of course, it has to end with all of them in super cool guy poses as they are looking at the camera instead of the massive explosion that is happening right behind them. All right, so we have an actually talented musician applying his trade to politics. You have a knockoff version of an action movie as a way of introducing a bunch of personalities that are otherwise unknown on the political stage. But that's not the most dangerous ground that a political ad can go into. No, friends, in my opinion, the most dangerous way that you can try to ply your trade in the political advertising game is to try comedy. Politicians, in my opinion, are not particularly comedically sensitive or gifted. They don't quite have a a, a preternatural sense of what is funny. And to be totally honest, even people who are the best at it, the best in the world, have a hard time matching a politically salient point with a genuinely humorous laugh line. So, you could only imagine that Kelly Loeffler, who is running for her seat in Congress, actually a really, really close race in Georgia, It might not be exactly the top of this game. What's more, and this is really the hallmark of somebody who's not at all funny, she decided that she was going to create an ad based on another funny ad. Lesson, friends, if you're going to try to do a parody, you should do a parody of an unfunny thing and make it funny. It's very hard to make a funny thing funnier. This is even harder when the funny thing that you're trying to make funnier isn't really, you know, it's clever, but it's not all that funny. So first, a little refresher. These are Geico ads. Well, this is one genre of Geico ads. They're famous for their ads. This is one of them. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Everybody knows that. Well, did you know Pinocchio was a bad motivational speaker? I look around this room and I see nothing but untapped potential. You have potential. You have, oh boy. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. And here's the ad for the candidate Kelly Leffler. Did you know Kelly Leffler was ranked the most conservative senator in America? Yep, she's more conservative than Attila the Hun. Fight China. Got it. Attack big government. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, eliminate the liberal scribes. More conservative than Attila the Hun. Uh-oh. Kelly Leffler, 100% Trump voting record. I'm Kelly Leffler. One point of order for the history nerds. It was Genghis Khan who bedeviled China. Uh, Attila the Hun was a villain for the Roman Empire. As for Kelly, she is in a very, very competitive primary, a jungle primary, as they call it, so there's a ton of opposition for her. She also uh, might be remembered as somebody that was involved in an early COVID insider trading scandal uh, and uh, publicly got into a fight with the players of a WNBA team she's a part owner of. So, busy, busy times for old Kelly. But that is it for our Wacky Ad Roundup! Folks, we have never had this level of support before. So thank you. If you have already become a patron at TakePoliticsSeriously.com, honestly, the support is humbling. Uh, you know, I joked earlier about, you know, uh, uh, totally uh, being the worst host on the planet if I ever got real money. Uh, in all in all honesty, guys, this is life-changing. And, and you uh, are really showing up when it counts. Uh, I have always tried to make every penny that you guys spend on this show worth it for you, and I will continue to. Indeed, I always remind you guys that if you want to get five episodes a week of this show until Election Day, it's only $6. At the $3 Club, you get all the, the bonus stuff that we're doing. So... That means there's only two paydays for me between now and election day. So go ahead and get on the train. In fact, I, I, I'm going to I'm gonna try to sweeten the pot a little bit. Over there on Andrew Heaton's Patreon, patreon.com slash Andrew Heaton for the political orphanage. I'm appearing on his show as well, just like he's appearing on mine. So if you get, if you're ripping through my five podcasts a week and you're like i mean i could stand to do a little bit more or you really love the little taste of andrew heaton when he's here and you want to take in his show but you know you could use a little gerbs to 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 kind of get you through the door now's the time in fact if you were at the three dollar level on both of our patreons literally just until election day 12 bucks that's not even a postmates fee Twelve dollars, and I think it's like 20, 20 podcasts at least between now and election day, and you're gonna get both of us talking to each other a lot. If you enjoy that dynamic, that's the way to do it. Take politicsseriously.com and patreon.com/slash Andrew Heaton. Three dollar level on both. Twelve bucks to the end of our election, or at least. <laughs> on election day on election day one it'd be more if it if it stretches out a couple weeks but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it until election day 12 bucks six bucks if you just want mine or six bucks if you just want his check it out take politicsseriously.com and patreon.com slash andrew heat
I love people who love politics. So I wind up getting into a lot of conversations with a lot of different people who believe a lot of different things. But there's one thing that runs through most of them. And that is a frustration with the way our system works. Electorally, this very often leads to people exclaiming and throwing their hands into the sky that we need more parties. And if we need more parties and we're not getting more parties, it's not illegal to make a new party now, but uh, uh, we, we need to instead have uh, ranked choice voting. Aha, okay, that's a way to fix that system electorally. And we've had previous conversations about the pluses and minuses of ranked choice voting. But then when we look at governance, you say, oh my God, these same people are in office year after year after year. Incumbency is overpowered and needs to be nerfed in the only way we know how. Term limits. After all, all the people that are currently bedeviling our congressional system, that people are yelling at, have been there for a very long time. And they don't show many signs of being able to cycle out. They're going to have to either die or retire on their own volition. And that is simply bad for the country. At least that's how the argument goes. But will term limits make anything better? That is the question that we ask our guest today, Jeff Lazarus. He is a professor of political science at Georgia State University. You can find him on Twitter at jlazarus001. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right. Term limits. This is something that we've heard a lot about the Supreme Court. We have heard, uh, uh, you know, certainly throughout the years about Congress. And uh, obviously we do have with uh, members of our executive branch, including the president. Uh, but they might not exactly be the cure all the people think that they are going to be. Let, let's let's just start with uh, uh, where we have them and where we don't have them. Like, what, what are the places that you've heard the most, oh my God, if we only had term limits blank, things would be better? Well, a lot of people really like term limits and people really want to see term limits enacted for the United States Congress. Um, right now, the places that we have term limits are, of course, in the presidency and as well, um, a number of states have them. I forget the exact number off the top of my head, but it's, it's somewhere between 15 and 20 states have term limits in their state legislatures. And they work slightly differently in every state. Some states have it where you can only serve a certain number of years total. Some uh, have it where you serve a certain number of years in the lower chamber and a certain number of years in the upper chamber. Uh, Congress, Senate and the House. Obviously, this is probably going to be a bigger topic of conversation when your leadership is older and have been household names for decades, right? Uh, uh, and that's certainly where we are now in our current uh, uh, incarnation of things. But you make the argument that, you know, recycling people in and out of, of, of government, while our thought would be that, oh, it would reduce corruption, it, it might do the exact opposite. 
Uh, yeah, that's um, well. We're not. Ex- Sorry. Claire, it depends Claire, on how you Claire, define. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, let's 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 start here. Does the the <laughs> it depends exi- on how you define corruption? Yeah, yeah. Let, let, does the existence of uh, uh, representatives of uh, you know in in Congress staying for longer increase corruption? In your opinion, let, let, let's start by defining the problem. Um. Probably not. Um, in uh, there are studies of corruption in Congress, and which members um, have certain types of scandals and and um, how it affects their careers. Um, I haven't seen any evidence that um, members of Congress who have been in office longer um, are more likely to have um, uh, a scandal, as we traditionally define a scandal, like in, involving improper moving around of money or um, uh, other types of scandals are usually we we um, uh, sort scandals into money scandals and sex scandals. Yeah. Um, and so the, the type of scandals that terminal limits might affect would pro- obviously be the money scandals because they involve improper influence peddling and, and you know, uh, things along those lines. But there's no evidence that I know of that shows us that people who have been in office longer are more prone to those types of shenanigans. Well, certainly what we saw with Katie Hill, the, there's there's no limit to how fast you can get into a sex scandal in Washington. So uh, exactly, the, the, this this would be money. And I guess in my head, the way I would imagine people painting this picture is, if you're at the switch of government for a year, maybe it takes X amount of time for moneyed interests or lobbyists to find you and and break you down uh, to 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 you know get you to pull pull yeah. their their lever and the longer you're there then either a the more likely you're going to be to make these decisions or b once you've made these decisions the more you are probably going to make them worse yeah that's not really the way it works um when you're in a position of power the folks who want to influence you are going to find you. And the way Congress is set up is so that the people who have been there the longest have the most power, right? You have to have seniority in the chamber to accrue influence over a policy area. You have to have seniority in the chamber in order to become a party leader or become a, a committee chair. So we see that in Congress, the folks closest to power are the ones who have been there the longest. But that doesn't mean being there longer makes you closer to unsavory interests or lobbyists or special interests or what have you. It's just because those are the folks who are the most powerful. If we made it so that you became super powerful after six months, then lobbyists are going to find you in six months. Yeah. If we made it so that you became super powerful after a year, lobbyists would find you in a year. Like they're going to find you. That, that, so, yeah, the, the, the larger point here is that the lobbyist job is to lobby like they are. They are not only like, like this is not mm-hmm. like they, they need a map to do it. They, they know where everybody is. And, and I don't know if this is exactly your your area of, of study, but colloquially knowing people that have been a part of like minimal, like we're talking state races, uh, the interests that normally fund certain sides of the aisle will find you fairly early. If you show any kind of promise, it's not going to be a, a, a ton of money, but like a few hundred dollars here to print signs that come from a certain interest. Like that 
that happens, and and you are uh, you are on their radar far earlier than by the time that you get to DC when you are now a a, a larger power player. Um, I think that's true to some extent. I mean, lobbyists, it they don't do a lot of investing in long shots, right? Sure. Um, if if you're an interest, uh, you're gonna look for the member of Congress or politician more generally who can give you the most bang for your buck. Yeah. And if, if you look like an up and comer, they might devote some attention to you, but for the most part, they are going to be laser focused on the folks who can help them. And that's primarily going to be, um, like I said, chairs of committees, people with seniority, party leaders, um, the folks who are the real movers and shakers and get things done in Congress and and um, uh, also in state legislatures. Well, then there we go. I'm sure people listening are like, Jeffrey, you literally just made my point. That's why we need to get these guys out of here sooner because they are targeting the leadership. They're targeting the people that have been there forever and they don't even have to change the numbers in their phone when they make the call to the head of the Senate Judiciary or the Senate Energy uh, 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 Commission. So, so then why isn't that an argument for term limits? That, that's a great question. And, and the answer is because they are going to target whoever is in that position, regardless of whether that person has been in the chamber for two years, eight years, 15 years, or 30 years. Um, and so the question is, when a lobbyist is facing off with a member of Congress, what kind of person do you want that member of Congress to be? Do you want that member of Congress to be somebody who is brand new to the job and doesn't know how Washington, D.C. works? Or do you want that person to be somebody who has 20 or 30 years of experience and knows what's going on backwards and forwards? So the, 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 the answer to that, I would presume, is, well, sure. What they give up in experience, they, we can at least take a gamble that maybe there's a little of that Mr. Smith goes to Washington, unbreakable will that won't sell out uh, because they are there for the right reasons and, and, and they're only going to be there for X amount of time. Is there any way that we could even measure that if, if, we, if we wanted? Um, measure the Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah, quality? exactly. Is there any, uh, is there any way that we a, could look at like whether or not that is even a phenomenon that we could track? Um, that's a really good question. Um, not that I know of, I've never seen or read, uh, to answer your question, this is pretty close to my area of expertise. Um, and I have not, um, heard of a study that measures that particular quality. That's not to say that it can't be done, just that it hasn't been done yet. Um, but here's what we know about term limits. All right. Is by definition, term limits reduces the amount of experience members of Congress, or they would reduce the amount of experience members of Congress have in office. They do reduce the amount of experience that state legislators have in office. And that has substantive effects on how legislatures operate. It means that the people in charge of running a legislature don't have a lot of experience and don't know how to do the job. They don't know how to pass legislation efficiently. 
They don't know how to negotiate with and against lobbyists. They don't know how to negotiate with and against members of the executive branch, governors at the state level, the president at the federal level. All of that put together means that when term limits are in effect, legislators are at a disadvantage. They're at a disadvantage relative to lobbyists and they're at a disadvantage relative to bureaucrats. All in all, that means the people we most directly elect, members of Congress, would have less power and less effectiveness under term limits than they do right now. And lobbyists and bureaucrats, people who we don't elect, would have more. All right. Let me drill down on one thing you said in terms of the skills needed. And let's for this, uh, uh, for the sake of this conversation, just drill down on the Senate, right? Because there's less of them. The power is more concentrated. What are those skills? You said knowing how to pass laws, knowing how to negotiate uh, with and against lobbyists and knowing how to reach both above and below their station to the federal government and to the state level. We are currently in a a phase, at least in terms of our popular understanding of politics, that maybe the establishment way of doing things isn't quite as valuable as as we have thought, That, that this experience is valuable to a certain extent, but not something that cannot be refreshed with a different a point of view make the argument for why these skills are important like like what what are you really learning in term three or term four that you wouldn't get two years into your first term okay let, let me give a few examples um one is how to put together a coalition right no member of congress can pass a bill by him or herself in order to pass a bill in the senate Uh, since you want to use the Senate as an example, you need, um, functionally, you need 60 votes. You don't even need 51 to win a vote at the end. You need 60 to get past the filibuster. So one of the things you need to learn is how to convince 59 of your colleagues to go along with you. Um, That takes a lot of rhetorical skill. It takes a lot of bargaining skill. It takes a lot of knowing which favor to trade um, and which favor not to trade and hold on to in your pocket for the next time. Um, Passing laws is a long, difficult, and arduous process that um, not many people are good at. Um, uh, A second example would be um, along the same lines Uh, how to manipulate the legislative process. Um, Passing a law requires not just negotiating with your fellow members of the Senate, but it also requires knowing um, the 100 plus page long Senate rule book. Um, You have to know which motions to invoke when. You have to know um, what's gonna happen if Senator X offers an amendment at a particular time, how to react to that amendment, um, if it's offered on the floor versus whether it's offered in committee, um, um, who the personalities are involved, that goes back to my first point. 
So knowing how to manipulate the legislative process is something that some people are good at and some people are bad at. And it's a skill, again, that develops over time. Um, a third thing you need to learn is, um, and this, this gets to the point of when you're negotiating with, with lobbyists and to a lesser extent bureaucrats, um, knowing how to look past what they say to what they truly want, right? Um, okay. When you're negotiating with somebody, say, say um, you know, you're buying a used car and um, the uh, used car salesman tells you that the car is great and it runs in perfect condition. You know, as a used car buyer, or at least you should know that the, the salesperson is, has an incentive to uh, not tell you the truth about the car. Um, similarly, if you're a legislator, legislator and you're talking to a lobbyist, you have to know which lobbyists are going to tell you the truth, which lobbyists are going to try to snow you, which, and, and for the lobbyists who are going to try to snow you, you know, what is the true meaning behind what they're saying, right? Even if, if they're saying something to you and you know they're not telling you the truth, you, you have to be able to find out what it is that they're actually trying to say or what it is that they actually want. Um, all of these are, are skills that take time and experience to learn. And it's why not just any old person can go to mem can go to Congress or to go to their state legislature and instantly become a legislative superstar, right? Some members of Congress are better at getting their ideas passed into law than others. Do we have an example of an inexperienced lawmaker making a, a, a law that had disastrous unintended consequences versus, I mean, because certainly uh, in terms of the Senate, uh, Legion are there examples of like the lions of the Senate uh, crafting grand bargains and, and being able to pull the strings of everybody and make these uh, uh, make these big deals when it mattered the most. But I can't off the top of my head think of, oh, obviously you don't want to be like Senator Dingleberry who passed the worst law ever. Uh, Senator Dingleberry. Senator Dingleberry might make an appearance in one of my classes when I want to give a bad <laughs> example about something. That's a great name. Um, uh, so the answer to your question actually is no. We don't have many examples, and uh, I'll tell you why. Um, is because, as I've said now, power is skewed toward the most um, powerful members of Congress, and so we don't have a lot of examples of junior members passing laws, period, right? Uh, newer members of Congress don't get a lot of their laws passed. Um, and so, the, so laws the, 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 way, the, way, the way that it normally works is if you are a superstar, then you are coming under the wing of a powerful person that is, that is then going to shepherd your idea or your initial thrust and go forward, right? Um, that, is, is, that, is that how stars are made? No, stars are usually made by um, a member picking one policy area that's usually obscure at the time or something that um, nobody else wants to do and, and de deciding that that's going to be their specialty. So an example of that would be Paul Ryan, uh, uh, formerly Speaker of the House of Representatives, Yeah, uh, started out by um, chairing, or he, he originally started out by focusing on the federal budget and then ended up chairing the budget committee. And um, he was able to um, do that as a relatively junior member because the budget committee is really boring 
and not a lot of people want to do it. Um, so he decided that was going to be his area. He developed this reputation as sort of a policy wonk because he was in charge of this relatively obscure and technically difficult uh, area of legislation. And he used that to rise to become Speaker of the House. So this is not something where anybody really cooperates uh, uh, to to make. I mean, you have to cooperate on some level, but the only way that you really become a star is by having the spotlight come to you, uh, either by natural means or by how much you are, how much noise you are making in some place that nobody wanted to be previous. Yeah. And it also depends on on what you mean by star. I mean, there are members of Congress who are publicly incredibly famous, have very widely known uh, household names who have very little um, legislative record to be proud of. Um, Ted Cruz comes to mind. Yeah. Um, is someone who is, you know, uh, the knock on like the Kardashians is that they're famous for being famous, right? Yeah. Ted Cruz is kind of famous for being famous. Um, he keeps running for president and he keeps not winning. Um, and he inserts himself into high profile political debates. Uh, like every time there's a budget shutdown, uh, Ted Cruz uh, seems to be in the middle of it or a fight over a potential budget shutdown. Um, but off the top of my head, I can't think of a single uh, significant law that he's authored. Now, I could be wrong. I don't know the legislative history of every bill known to, known to mankind. So if one of your listeners wants to fact check me on this. Uh, that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Send me angry emails. That's fine. I'm but sure, I can't think yeah. of one. I'm sure I'm sure um, Ted Cruz is uh, he'll, he'll get on his alt account and flame you on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> well, then let me let me go here then, because Congress has and has for a long time had a historically terrible approval rating. People yes. don't like Congress. Uh, people listening right now don't like Congress because uh, unless something happens between when we record this on Friday and when we air this, or sorry, when we, when we record this on Wednesday and when we air this on Friday, we, will, we are likely not to have any kind of COVID relief deal amongst a hundred-year pandemic uh, for which crippled our economy. So... There is, I think, a sense of, all right, let's say everything that you're saying is totally correct. And yes, there is a value to experience. What has that bought us now? And if not, uh, if it's not something that we're happy with, then why not flush everybody out and, and let's just try it a different way? Even if there, even if, if all good sense says that it isn't necessarily a cure-all, what's the harm when everybody hates the current system? Because it's not just not a cure-all, it actually is harmful. This is something we have evidence for. This okay. is, like I've said, we have, we have decades worth of observations from states that have instituted um, uh, term limits in their state legislatures. And what we know about those states is that their state legislatures become less effective. And the question then becomes, who becomes more effective? Who becomes more effective in those states are bureaucrats and lobbyists. So if your goal is to make bureaucrats and lobbyists more powerful in Washington, D.C., by all means, institute term limits. Yeah. But 
everything we know, and by we, I mean the political science community, everything we know about term limits is that they're bad. And, and I want to, and I want to, and I want to um, add on to that. It is incredibly rare that political scientists or any academic community is this unified on a topic, right? It is very rare that you can look at a particular institutional reform and say, the results are all good or the results are all bad. But term limits is something where we have done study after study after study. I mean, literally hundreds of studies on dozens of different potential outcomes. And almost every single one of them comes back saying term limits disempower legislators, they empower lobbyists, they, they make legislators um, um, less likely to listen to constituents, right? Because if you can't win re-election, why should you listen to your voters? And not only that, and this is my own limited contrib uh, contribution to this literature, um, uh, they don't even work that well at their stated goal of getting politicians out of office. Because if you're a politician and your goal is to make a political career, well, when you're term limited out of office, all you do is you find another office to run for. Yeah. This is what happens at the state level. If you're if you're in the, the lower chamber of a state legislature and you're you're you've done your eight years in the lower chamber, you just run for the upper chamber or you run for governor or you run for treasurer or you run for whatever you can find. They don't actually do that well at getting people out of government. They just shuffle people around in different seats. Sure. Uh, and and I mean, I could see an argument for, all right, well then, yeah, then they go for another thing. And when we, we vet their record and, and the people at least decide there, although I guess we're, it's not like, uh, I mean, I guess really the only argument for that would be it takes away the incumbent advantage that incumbents almost universally win, especially in lower yeah. turnout elections. So at the very least, it would make a name brand politician, not a forever incumbent. So, so that was that was one of the things that um, uh, is a is an argument for term limits. I'm old enough to remember the original term limits movements from the from the '90s, um, and that was one of their chief selling points was that we're going to get these incumbents out of office, and that's going to get fresh blood, and this fresh blood is going to do all sorts of great things. It's going to make elections more competitive, and it's going to get more women and minorities in office, and it's going to reduce the incumbency advantage, and and all the evidence from the state level has said that none of that has happened. Incumbents win just as often when they run. Uh, there's no, you know, less money in elections. The elections are not on average any closer. Um, we haven't diversified these state legislatures at all. Like, and, and term limits have been affected in some of these places for 30 years now, um, 25 years. Um, and then none of it's come about. All right, one last pitch here for you, because there are term limits and then there are like term limits. And and I'm going to give you California <laughs> examples because that's where I'm based here in, in the Bay Area. But Diane Feinstein has served, uh, has won election five times. She is next up for election in 2024, where she would, I mean, if she runs again, and that's what she's really good at, uh, she would be running for a sixth term of six years in office in the uh in in the senate 
Uh, similarly, Nancy Pelosi has served in the House of Representatives since uh, I was four years old in 1987. And, and uh, she is still obviously there as the Speaker of the House now. Uh, what about just very, very generous term limits? Like, like, we'd let you have a Dianne Feinstein career. You can get elected to five terms right? Or maybe even four, right? That's 24 years in office, a quarter of a century, nearly a quarter of a century in office. Surely that couldn't uh, uh, upset the apple cart too much. It would literally just be there to eject people that are are, are spending their entire life in the chamber. Um, the most generous and, and perfectly honest, the, the most accurate thing I could say about that is... Um, None of the states that have term limits currently have enacted term limits that look like what you're describing. So we literally don't know how that would work or what it effect it would have on governance for good or for ill. Um, my speculation is that um, what you're suggesting is taking a bad policy and making it less bad. So instead of all right you all flatter of the me you flatter of, me <laughs> <laughs> uh, my speculation is that if if you instituted something like that you'd get some of the negative effects of term limits but not all of them or maybe those effects would be somewhat weaker but they'd probably still be there in some way shape and form and they almost certainly would not achieve the things that term limits proponents want to achieve. And that is more frequent turnover. The idea that, that, you know, your, your representation of the people as a government representative is just a thing you do and then you leave because we shouldn't have permanent representation. Right. there. Well, frequent turnover is a goal of term limits, but it's not the only and, and not even the most important goal, right? Um, most, most term limits arguments that I've come across want frequent turnover as a means to an end, and the end being a more representative government or less corruption or more diversity in the chamber or closer elections or something along those lines. Um, and all the research suggests that term limits don't achieve any of those things. Yeah. I, I do wonder, like, you know, when, when FDR puts in presidential term limits, the idea of eight years in office has hit a element of, of, of simpatico with our American culture. We kind of feel like, even for presidents that we like, like, yes, we might have voted for, you know, a, a Reagan or an Obama or a Clinton or something like that for another term. But I think the mood of the nation by the end of eight years is like, oh, let's move on. That people tend to be excited to vote for an opposite party, at least based on election trends. Uh I, I do wonder if there's an element of that for some of these other representative slots. Like, I, I do wonder if there's if there's a moment where, at the very least, for, for all that Dianne Feinstein has done for the Golden State of California, that uh, is there a limit to, to uh, where she will be useful for the people versus another person coming in with maybe more vim, vigor, and energy? Look, I... Look, I get why people want term limits. I People, as you mentioned before, people don't like Congress. People don't like the people elected to Congress. Although 
one of the most interesting paradoxes we see in political science is that people don't like Congress, but they love their member of Congress. Yes, and that's I can talk true. about that yeah. paradox yeah. for an hour. But um but when you know when you don't like the people who are in Congress, it's really natural to say, oh, we should get rid of them and just you know bring in whole new people. But but there's no way to ensure that those new people are going to be any better. And let me tell you another way that I get it, because, um, you know, you're talking about the example of Diane Feinstein. And, and let me tell you, um, I turned 18 in 1994. Okay. And I was living in California at the time. And my first uh, Senate election was voting for yeah, Diane Feinstein. Feinstein. Yeah. Or voting on Diane Feinstein. Um, I shouldn't let that slip, but whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, so she's been in office and, and a heck of a long time, right? Yeah. And I get, and that's not unusual for the Senate, right? There are a lot no. of senators who have been in, in office that long and longer. Um, but the, the way to fix that is not to limit voters' choices. Because, because here's the thing that people don't appreciate about term limits necessary, necessarily is that term limit is viewed by, by many voters as a limit on politicians, but it is in every respect also a limit on voters, right? If you have a member of Congress who voters like, term limits prevents you from reelecting that person. Yeah. And, and so what you're doing is you're limiting the extent to which voters have a say in their own representation and you're weakening the connection between voters and their representatives. Well, a, a lot of food for thought, and we have Jeff Lazarus to thank for it, a professor of political science at Georgia State University. Please find him on Twitter, jlazarus001 on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. Thank you for having me. It was fun. And that will be it for us today. Uh, thanks again to uh, everybody who supports this show at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You can head on over there to support the program. Maybe even join the Titanic $10 tier, including Lord Generic Frenchman, Dr. G. Jacob Wilson, Dallas Danger Taylor, your boy Craig. Zombie Doc, Gazer Beam, Utah, Jimmy Montana, Captain Bunzo, Cujo, Tally, Richard, Memory Pie, App, Crookie McCrook, Face, Justin Ryan, Egan, D Laser, Matt, who called from both labor and deliver, uh, delivery, Katie, vote for Joe Biden 2020, Evan Malone, Rob, vote for Gloria Young 2020, vote for Trump 2020, Martin, Government Unfiltered, Neil, Archie, Darren, Daily Tech News Show, Adam, Joe, David, Jacob, DL, Steven, Kyle, Chad, Miranda, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Glenn Wolf Brand, Bland, <laughs> Glenn Wolf Brand, Chili Scoop, Long Week. Dustin, David, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age Mike, Jim, Right the Gen, MacBook Pro, Leon, Frozen Summer, J Pink, Andrew, Matthew, and James. You want to join their ranks? Yeah, head on over 
to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And we're done. We are done uh, for this week. Thank you guys for being a part of the team. We are in crunch time. Further into crunch time. Another debate. And then that's it. These ships are pointed to their destination and they are flying. Mm-mm-mm. All right. Very, very exciting. Uh, if you want to send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You want to hit me up on Twitter. It is at Justin R. Young. Until next time, a reminder that some shows talk about politics. Others talk about politics and still more talk about politics. But this is the only show that talks about Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. (laughs) Dog and Pony Show Audio.